0: Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope everyone's doing well. Things are going well here in China. Although time's sort of moving in strange ways, it seems. Sometimes fast, sometimes slow. About a week and a half ago, it was definitely all wonky, my time at least, because I had to fly out to Chicago to see my brother get married, so congrats to him. And I got to see my family, which is a good thing. While I was there, I also saw The Farewell, which I highly recommend to anyone who is an Asian American I thought that film was the first film that I've seen, at least, that spoke and talked about the complexities of an Asian-American, at least in the movies, more specifically Chinese-American, although I think a lot of the issues definitely transfers over to a lot of different Asian cultures. I Actually, there are two parts where I cried, which might surprise a few of the listeners. So yeah, I recommend it. I know some people have some mixed feelings about Aquafina, but yeah. Um, if you haven't canceled her, then I recommend go and try to see it in the theaters. Um, and so, yeah, and while in Chicago, my clock had to go back 13 hours. And then after a few days, I had to fly back out to China and switch back another 13 hours. So I was definitely tired for a good week when I returned. On the way out, I did get to make a quick stop to Hong Kong, visit my cousin, ate some good food, saw this funny exhibition about Studio Ghibli where they recreated entire scenes from the various movies. Although the entire time I was there, it was definitely definitely tense. Um, Anyway, so for today, I'm interviewing my very good friend Yvette Robertson. I met Yvette first through Nin Yamamoto Masan, who I previously interviewed, and also through Lavender Wolf, an American artist currently living in Belgium. I had always wanted to interview Lavender, shout out to Lavender, but I never got a chance to interview him before I left Europe, so maybe in the future. But anyways, so Yvette and I continued to run into each other, and we started hanging out quite a lot, especially towards the end of my stay. And we spent definitely many weekends biking around to the different parks that Berlin has to offer. And we talked a lot about race and identity, especially since because that's what Yvette does for a living. So I should clarify that Yvette teaches race and intersectionality to business professionals at various institutions. And these classes tend to be mandatory set by the administrators in order to look socially conscious and aware, although... Oftentimes, they don't quite know what that means, which tends to lead to oftentimes weird dynamics. And a lot of these business professionals who take the class oftentimes don't have the language or sometimes the interest even to take them. And so I was fascinated when I learned that this is what Yvette does. I attended a few of Yvette's classes to see how this dynamic would play out in these institutions. And I found that whole experience spooky, tiring, and fascinating uh, Neen, Neen, once described what Yvette does as basically doing the hard work that no one wants to do. And I totally get that. So I was really happy to be able to talk to Yvette about this. We had just finished a really large breakfast that Yvette had cooked up. It was a Sri Lankan breakfast and I brought some orange juice and Prosecco. So we had some mimosas. So we're both mildly drunk, There's another friend in the other room, although I think the audio is quite good, and yeah, there shouldn't be any issues with that. And we talk about power dynamics, we talk about processing white guilt, we talk about the failures of true objectivity. It was a fun conversation, and so I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: No, I won't, I promise.
0: All right. You
1: ready? I'm ready. Okay. Yeah.
0: So... Right now I'm with Yvette Robertson in her apartment. She just made some really amazing Sri Lankan food. What was the name of the food again? Padipoo. Padipoo, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, there's some sort of lento curry mm-hmm. dish with rice, and she had some fried uh, chips, papadam, Papa yeah. yeah. and uh, got some prosecco and orange juice. Had some mimosas <laughs> early. It's yeah. only it's only Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday morning uh, But yeah, it was great, mm-hmm. we ate with our hands And yeah, so
1: mm-hmm.
0: Hello Yvette
1: Hello, how, how are you Yvonne? doing? I'm fine today, it's nice, cooler than it's been Yeah, can so we, we close this. this? Yes we can
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, how how's, how how's your morning going?
1: Very nice, very relaxed Tuesdays, I'm always happy um, to have my Tuesdays off. I've started teaching four days a week, and that has made a big difference.
0: Because you used to do more?
1: Mm-hmm. I used to de- do six days a week, then I dropped it down to a normal five-day week, and then I decided, okay, this Wait,
0: six days a week, so you teach on Saturday, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I guess before we go over into your teaching, which is what I really, really want to talk about, <laughs> I'm fascinated about that as a topic, mm-hmm. but some background I met Yvette through a few um I guess events discussions I think the first time we formally talked was through Neen I mm-hmm. believe Neen told me about this event with this sort of game mm-hmm. about I don't know what how to describe it but yeah. I think the premise is teaching white people how to think about race but it was strange because the people invited were all people of color mm-hmm. and there's I guess different levels of understanding of how to talk about race with a game that's aimed at white people versus one that's not, and so that's when we first met, and then mm-hmm. we met again at an event held by Lavender, who's an mm-hmm. artist based in Brussels. but he had an event that was talking about where are you from. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really interesting because he, as a black man, he never had ask, he was never asked that question mm-hmm. in the states, but then mm-hmm. when he came to Europe, he was. But that's a question that's commonly asked of Asian-Americans. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of interesting dynamic. Yeah. But then we, after after Lavender gave the talk, we talked a lot more, and then we started hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so Yvette, the thing that I was most fascinated by about uh, your work is the fact that you teach cultural competency mm-hmm. to white German businessmen, or it doesn't have to be men, but German businessmen who – are interested in becoming international CEOs. Yes. So they have to learn how to talk to other people who happen to be mm-hmm. not white or German. Mhm. And so yeah, you want to talk about Indeed. that <laughs> or you or how you got into that or is it just sure. there's so many questions that I have about
1: that. <laughs> how I got into it. Well, okay, so I've lived in Berlin now since 1999 and when I first came here I started out as a language teacher, so I was teaching business English, and I taught with the agencies for the first year, and then after one year, I decided to start my own business.
0: Well, first of all, why
1: Berlin? <laughs> well, <laughs> I have two answers to that. Right. I have the answer that I give to People that I don't know very well, and then they answer that's uh-huh. actually the truth. The truth is, I was engaged.
0: Oh. Okay. <laughs> For love.
1: Yeah. My partner at the time couldn't get a visa to the United States. Uh-huh. Um, we tried everything, and so then it was a decision had to be made. Either we were going to split up um, because they were banned from coming to the United States. Banned?
0: Banned. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: And then, uh, and, or, or I would give it a go here. And we talked about it. I said, listen, okay, I hope you're sure, because I've been down this road before. <laughs> and um, he said, yes. And basically, I came. And then three months later, we split up. Oh, God. <laughs> hmm. Cross-cultural relationships. So... That's why I came. But why I came and why I stayed are two different things. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I didn't necessarily choose Germany as a place to come to. I came to here because my partner was from here. But once I got here, I was fascinated by the subtle differences in culture. And I thought, okay, I had a plan B. Since I had been down this road before, I thought, okay, well, this time I'm going to come, and I'm going to prepare myself and make plans to stay on my own terms, and that meant that I would start my own business, and my own business would be teaching English. So that's what I did, Um, mostly to business people in the beginning. Why
0: specific business?
1: It was lucrative. Oh, okay. okay. Um, the schools weren't paying very much. If you were freelancing for an agency, you were paid very, very little, and you ended up working impossible hours just to make enough to survive. Whereas, if you were teaching freelance for yourself, then and had business contracts, they were prepared to pay much more. Okay. So that's what made sense at the time. And then through teaching business English, you can't really teach about. You can't really teach in, b- any language without teaching the culture at the same time. Right, right. right. They're, they're, they're interlinked. Mm-hmm. So that's how I walked into that. And then about 2009, a colleague of mine um, who had begun doing intercultural trainings, they were called relocation trainings, asked me if I would be interested in doing that, being her co-trainer. So uh-huh. she was German, and she said, well, I'm doing these trainings for... German business professionals that will be going over to the United States. And uh, would you be interested in sort of providing any additional context? So I sat in on a few of the trainings and I I liked it. I thought it was interesting um, to hear their perspectives on American culture, what they were learning. And I began training for a company in, in, based in South Jersey. It's not South Jersey, South, South Germany. Germany. <laughs> <laughs> called uh, I said no, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> Get the two mixed up. No, South Germany, and um, in in Passau, called IC Unit and Age and they uh, did trainings for business professionals. So I eventually, I set in on a, quite a few trainings, and then I began doing it myself. And then later, I uh, was um, asked if I would be interested in developing the one-day trainings that we were giving to these professionals into a course for international business management students. Mm-hmm. So these were mostly a student's in the Erasmus programs that would come to Germany to study, and um,
0: Erasmus is sort of like the study abroad of Europe.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's why I began teaching in the universities.
0: Okay. And so, what was because how did you develop? How do you go about developing that?
1: Yeah, I had to think about what would I would have needed to learn theoretically and practically.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. I could draw from some of the theoretical knowledge that I gained while doing the management trainings yeah the intercultural trainings relocation trainings but there was a lot of teaching myself learning new things to add in.
0: Did you have a background in, Did you have a background in in all, uh, all the the readings and writings that you now include in the course?
1: Um, at the time no okay Those, that was something that I had to develop. I began curating a lot of things to read, thing resources for the clor- course myself.
0: And what were some of the some of the people that you were reading and mm. informing your the direction to go for this cultural competency course?
1: Well, I started out with you know pretty much the classical cultural dimensional theorists. So it was Edward T. Hall and Hofstede, but then there was a Dutch. Intercultural theorist named Franz Trompenars, and I was um, taking a lot from his work, and then I began to look at how power dynamics affect these things, and, and how we interpret these notions of cultural competence and preferences, and how some people's preferences are deemed the norm and the standard. Mm-hmm. And then I began to question it, and so Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality theory, I began reading a bit about that. I began reading a bit about the standard reactions to discussions around oppression in the classroom. Robin DiAngelo's work helped a lot. I began following a German practitioner of Jane Elliott's theories, Mm. you know, out of, you know, fascination, because I didn't understand what was the dynamic in the German context. I understood how racism, sexism functioned in the American context, but I didn't understand, except for my own individual experience, how that functioned in the German context. And so I began to be more interested in that perspective and to make the business people aware that we're going to the U.S. and the Germans that will be working with U.S. people here, even in Germany, more aware of what... These power dynamics looked like, and how they impacted their colleagues and the people that they served, and even you know, they were in companies that were producing things and products and services, and how they would impact their markets. So, yeah, but it's an ongoing process. I'm still learning a lot, and I'm still reading a lot. As my German has gotten better, I've been able to read more works by. By German people, and mostly just you know, blogs and articles that have been published by by various people. Yeah, that's pretty much my answer to that. Yeah, you know, I'm still I'm a student as well. well ideally, be,
0: we're all students. Yeah. Right? I think that when we stop being students or we think we know mm-hmm. everything, that's when we die.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's been a journey. It's been fascinating challenging, frustrating sometimes working in the classroom. I've lately I've been considering going back to working with business professionals because I kind of feel like there is a certain degree of maturity that needs to be brought to understanding this material. And I'm not quite certain that um, first business,
0: what, are, what are business professionals versus, you mean like people who have already graduated with an
1: MBA? Graduated okay. with an MBA and they're working in companies. So
0: the, cl- so the class, so yeah, you've, had, you've invited me to a few of her classes. So those classes, they were still getting their
1: masters, mm-hmm. right? okay. Getting their bachelors and their okay. masters. Okay, yeah. So I teach at the moment mostly, I would say, except for one institution, first and second year bachelor students. So they're coming in fresh And a lot of them have never had a black woman as a teacher before. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of confrontation with the new and uh, navigating that as they navigate, you know, these experiences.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, This awareness. I'm just
0: thinking, I think if I were 18 or 19, I don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. if
0: I could process all that information. I I question myself. I'm questioning it. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, like, if I was 18, 19, and I had a course like what you're teaching, like Mm -hmm. talking about Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality and race and power dynamics.
1: I thirsted for it. When I was in school, um, I went to school at 18 at the university, and um, I had to work. And go to school at the same time, and while working, I began to pick up. Well, I'd always picked up on these things. I'm a black woman. I, you know. I, I, you know, as a teenager, I began to think about these things and be more outspoken. But by the time I was at university, I was beginning to find ways to talk about it and ways to protect myself. Yeah, you know, I was. Um, I went to Temple University in Philadelphia. At that time, Philadelphia was still reeling from what was, you know, going on in the 80s. You know, this was Mumia Abu Jamal. This was MOVE. I had started a degree at Temple in communications and then had to take a break.
0: What was communications back What? Because what, what now I have communications like advertisement mm-hmm. Media theory, what was communications like mean that back then?
1: At Temple, it meant radio, television, and film. So you were getting basically, I I had the feeling that we were being trained to be CNN newscasters. Really? Yeah. It was a lot of just, um, it was journalism, but not so much. It was very much, I thought we were CNN newscasters in training. And it wasn't really, it didn't give me enough leeway, enough freedom to put my own interpretation and my learning and what I wanted to do with it. So I decided to drop out of school for a while, take a year off, and I worked for a bookstore. And that was when I first began to really experience it firsthand. I knew what I was experiencing. In fact, I ended up suing the bookstore that hired me Mm -hmm. because they were using me to racially profile the people, young black men that were coming to the bookstore. So, Like
0: you would be the one that was forced to confront them and not, not, not the other employees
1: right when I spoke out about it I was fired and so I took them to court and I won a small settlement but um you know I had to defend myself I couldn't have a lawyer there it was a mediation and that was me at 19 sitting across to uh managers of the bookstore chain and having to defend myself to them and my what, what I saw so I had been outspoken about these things for a long time, and when I by if I had been if I had encountered this type, you know, of class, I would have been ready for it. Mm. And indeed, I do have students that are ready, you know. And each semester, there's a few more. I think the times are changing, and people have more access to the information, and they're understanding that they have to begin to reflect on this information. And it affects them too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be my last confrontation. You know, it was—it was a lot. Um, it was very frightening I, during those times in Philadelphia to yeah. to go through that because I did and I didn't know.
0: Yeah. Well, you're forced to. Mm-hmm. You're forced to know it on some level. Mm-hmm. Whether you have the language for it, I think, mm-hmm. is another thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I was thinking about at 18. Like, I don't think I had the language mm-hmm. to process that or have a discussion i don't know
1: yeah like the words racial profiling you know that i wouldn't have been able to describe it i would say i would just be able to describe what i was doing and why i didn't feel right and why i think that there were racist grounds you know that i was uh, for their firing at me and uh i think i mean you know i continue to be a- interested in this um i moved to Boston. You mean um, during
0: your year off?
1: No, this was sometime later. So you
0: took a year off, went back to Temple, finished, and then went
1: to Boston. I should probably give a timeline because oh, it, <laughs> it gets kind of confusing. So I went to Temple University from 1982 to 1988. Uh-huh. and 1983, I took a year off and went back. 1984, I switched my major to English and then... I went abroad for six months to Trinity College in Ireland and then came back in 1988 and finished my my degree. Yeah. So in between that time, after I came back from Ireland, I lived in Philly again for a year, and then I moved to Boston. And that's when I began to meet people in the university circuits there that, you know, you go to talks and lectures. Yeah. And, and meet people and I met a man who published a book called Race Traitor.
0: Race Traitor. <laughs> yeah, a
1: white man. And I traitor still...
0: like a traitor or like who trades? Traitor. 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 Okay. Like a
1: traitor okay. you know to your government yeah. or whatever. and And uh, he was, you know, the first person that I ever talked about about talked to about the culture of whiteness mm. and what that meant. And he had written his his self-published his own little book on it. Okay. And I still have it somewhere in my I don't even remember. I don't even remember Race Trader. Look look it up,
0: I'll put it on the show notes. Yeah. If I can
1: find the book, you know. Yeah. So yeah, that was all all these things were part of it was part talking to people, part experience that began to help me mm, form the words to describe what it was I was experiencing again and again. Um, my reasons for staying here was because I had tried going back and with more credentials and going back and proving myself, and it never was enough. In the I was, States, going in, back. in the United States after. And so I decided, mm, no, this last time when I moved abroad in 1999 to Germany, mm, I decided that was it. You know, I had given the United States more than a few chances, and I was ready to try something new to see. I never thought that I would not experience racism in Germany. I think I was curious to see what form it would take.
0: Yeah, I was curious. Yeah, I was about, that was the follow-up question. What are the what are the differences that you've noticed? Mm-hmm. I mean, and on one hand, it's interesting that you thought that you had a better chance teaching here than in the States. Mm-hmm. Because in my mind, I feel like teaching is really hard here because they're all, you need like a PhD to even be a professor and all the professors are like already on tenure track. So there's like no space. And also this notion of a private university is sort of more popular in the States, which means there's just more schools. Mm -hmm. Whereas here it's all like public funded schools, so cheaper, but also means there's just not as many Teachers Mm -hmm. and teaching positions available. Mm -hmm.
1: What I recently came to know was that a lot, I'd say more, there are more freelance teachers in the universities, in the state and private universities, than there are teachers that are contract, that are PhDs. Where?
0: In Germany. In Germany. Okay.
1: Yeah, sorry. So they, I think this, you know, the adjunct professorship.
0: Is more popular, it's yeah. more
1: popular here, it's mm. it's more cost effective, and that's because they don't have to pay for your health care and pension and things like that. So, speaking
0: in um, the art world, yeah, yeah. In
1: the US. Mm. I don't even know. I know that I, you know, I had to actually go online and look because I've been here 20 years, yeah. What do they even call freelance teachers in the university sis- system in the US? And I was amused to find out that they were adjunct professors. I thought, yeah. like, really professors? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <You're... laughs> like right yeah. In,
0: in, in Germany, you're not a professor unless you're like a tenure track. Like right. Everything else besides tenure, tenure track is not a professor. Right, exactly. So, I have that on my resume, adjunct professor,
1: mm.
0: soon-to-be assistant professor. Yeah,
1: it's <laughs> wonderful. So, yeah, that's how it is. I is. actually was rather surprised that, that was, I was – Able to um, teach in the university system because uh, while I have a lot of experience, I don't have um, a whole lot of academic qualifications. I'm I have only a bachelor's degree in English. Everything else I've had to, you know, research, develop, learn on my own. So I there's always this lingering feeling of inferiority mm. in academics, and because you know a lot of my colleagues didn't know that I didn't had did not have a master's degree once they found out they were rather shocked and i thought i'm not sure if that's good or bad <laughs> i'm sure to be complimented or in, insulted i don't know yeah um,
0: it's hard to tell yeah especially with the germans
1: <laughs> yeah yes yeah indeed so yeah m- my trajectory is it's it has a timeline, but it's, it's also very stop and stop and start. Stop one thing, start another. You know, I was an in-house business English trainer and cultural consultant for Daimler for eight years. Our company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daimler financial services. So it was the wing that dealt with leasing agreements mm-hmm. and, and, you know, financing agreements and things like this for cars. So it was in, in, interesting. I had an excellent setup there. I was um, given an office in a very desirable location, Potsdamer Platz, high-rise building. Is that desirable? Potsdamer Platz, yeah. Oh, okay. in, in terms of business, oh, okay. yeah, that's... Because um, I'm not in
0: the business. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> All the artists want yeah. to live in Kreuzberg or Neukölln. Right,
1: and if you're teaching if you if you have anything to do with business. Okay. You know Potsdamer Platz was where That's you were to be. Yeah, okay. Sony Center. Yeah. You had all of it. Deutsche Bahn was there. Some a lot of the big hotels were there. You were very well. I mean it was Berlin's little Frankfurt, mm-hmm. you know. And so yeah, the the Davis building with the green cube, you know, it's famous architecturally because it has the same dimensions as Notre Dame, Notre Dame.
0: What do you mean the same dimension? Like
1: the inside, the atrium as you walk into the building it was designed to have exactly the same height and almost Mm. the same. It's a cathedral like structure when you walk into it. Mm. And so it was very impressive architecturally. Tourists came to see it, you know, and there's that's where Daimler financial services had their headquarters. And, I had a couple of students that really liked my lessons and they were higher ups and they advocated for me having an office there. And this office was paid for. Mm. I had in fact two rooms and I was one time out of curiosity asked what the rent would be. And they said about 5,000 a month.
0: (laughs) That's so much in Berlin.
1: Yeah. Anywhere,
0: but like to, Mm -hmm. to, I, you know, to imagine someone's paying 5,000 a month in Berlin Mm -hmm. is a lot.
1: I had that for eight years.
0: I had, and you were consulting them for lease agreements. It's like the language of the lease.
1: Yeah, it was various departments. So mm. I taught everyone from who administrative assistants all the way up to members of the supervisory board.
0: Just like how to talk, how to use language that.
1: It was a variety of things. It was vocabulary. It was how to talk. It was how to give presentations. It was mm-hmm. how to sit in, in and participate in meetings. It was how to be more persuasive. It was how to, um, yeah, just um, come over more professionally. I think at that time they had a policy that if there was one American in the meeting, that all the entire meeting had to be in English. And there were more than a few People at Daimler who had been from the former DDR and they had studied uh, in the DDR system, they studied Russian. So here they are in their mid-30s, early 40s, and they have to suddenly learn English in order to seem professional and to seem to be taken seriously in these meetings. And so there was a lot of, you know... It's fascinating,
0: right? We don't think about the mm -hmm. privilege we have as English
1: speakers. Mm Right. There's a lot of that there. Um, and especially if you speak American English, because... What a,
0: are, so they dismissed the British?
1: Yeah, they did. They, do. they did. <laughs> they okay. said, if you don't want to learn British English, we want to learn American English. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it was really, yeah.
0: It, Just, uh, I wonder, <laughs>
1: <laughs> they wanted American English, because their colleagues were American. They were Daimler Chrysler for a long time until they demerged. Mm. Um and the demerger was a process in itself, and that's also where I began to see cultural differences. when my my students, it was sort of you know they would come in. It wasn't often groups. It was usually one to one lessons. And they'd
0: approach you. Is that how it worked? Or
1: they no. they would make an appointment with me. Okay. And they would have an appointment. They would come down to the office, and that's then so they would sit at a table with me. And I would have a lesson ready. And they would sometimes, they didn't want to do English. They wanted to talk about their day. And so it was more... In, in English, though? In English. Okay. And sometimes it was they, It was very upsetting Then they would talk in German. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was a counseling aspect to this. You know, it was very much a counseling aspect. And why did the Americans behave this way? What are they oh, trying oh, they to do? They felt slighted
0: by an American... Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, they were very. Um, will
0: be something that they get slight. It will be an example of something that an American might do that they'd unconsciously do that would make or upset a German.
1: Um, not reply to emails or talk over them in like they had video conferences sometimes. Very elaborate video conferencing system where there could be 12 participants sort of in a Brady Bunch style. (laughs) Everybody's based there.
0: Nine disembodied heads.
1: Right. And although there would be a clear hierarchy and then Germans were the head office, the Americans seemed to take over and they were so much more, I don't know, you know, there's different competing ideas for what makes for good communication and the Americans were very... Present and very forth,
0: you know, forthright. Took a lot of space. Right. Yeah. Take up
1: a lot of space. And they would sometimes speak very fast yeah. and talk over the German participants. And they would use their fluency as a weapon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They knew that they could steer a meeting or dynamics in a meeting to their favor mm. simply because they were better at the language. Yeah, There was no effort by the Americans to sitting in the offices in the states to learn German. Yeah. There was mostly, you know, the Germans that were making the the big effort to learn to yeah. learn English. So yeah, you know, it was sometimes that dynamic became upsetting and there would be individual tensions, there would be departmental tensions between departments.
0: So you're like a therapist. <laughs>
1: It, it sometimes yes that's what i felt like you know i hesitated to call you know because i didn't know you know respect the amount of training that therapists have to go through no yeah but, but yeah you know it was sometimes it was it was that kind of thing and i realized i didn't have a whole lot of answers for why um mm. and once i began to dig deeper and find out more about what the Americans were actually trying to do with small talk, for example.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think? So yes, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. What do you think Americans are trying to do with small talk?
1: Well, our small of, talk oh, is and coded, and the sign of
0: Germans hate small talk. Mm-hmm. There are entire essays written by Germans <laughs> about how bad to society small talk is Mm -hmm. so
1: and that was the number one requested skill (laughs) you know can you teach me how to make small talk and I'm like you already know you know you do it's just that you have different you're doing it for different reasons yeah yeah you know the Americans I think it's sometimes coded it's a very backdoor way of finding out where a person is in the hierarchy yeah how much power they have how much experience they have yeah You know, I use a training film in my classes that sort of is a compilation of stereotypes. And there is a one character who represents the American, Jesse King. And she begins by introducing herself. uh, I'll go first. I'm the oldest of five kids. And my German students are always asking, why does she mention that? It has nothing to do with business. What is going on Uh, there? I sat in on that class. Mm -hmm. I I was also fascinated.
0: It flew over my head. I was like, okay. Like yeah, she's just introducing herself, and
1: then mm-hmm.
0: the Germans thought she was rude to talk about her personal history about about being the oldest of five kids, and
1: yeah, it's coded. So that's how we use it, you know. We want to show we're competent. We want to show that we have leadership skills. We want to show uh, that we have. We want to talk. We want to humble brag. We want to tell you where we went to school and uh, how much we've done without being without seeming like we're talking about ourselves
0: yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought, well, I mean, cause I, I met with my tandem partner. I, I I have a tandem partner to practice German with, mm-hmm. and he was asking me about that. Like, what? He asked me yesterday, why? Mm-hmm. I, I hate small talk, <laughs> you know? And, and then he's like, no one would ask, a German would never ask how the weather is unless he actually cared, right. you know? And then right. I I, I like, thought about it for like a few moments, and I said that, I feel Mm -hmm. like that kind of small talk, like, how is, how's it going? What's the weather like? They're all like, like you said, backdoor ways to get a sense of a person, Mm -hmm. right? You don't actually care how they are Mm -hmm. or what the weather is like, but more like their response will dictate Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how to move forward with a conversation. Exactly. And if you, yeah, if you want to have that conversation, obviously Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't need to, but.
1: Exactly. And it's uh, the values with which we approach a conversation, you know, in Germany, very much a conversation is something that takes place between two people in which we can learn from each other. Yeah. You know, there's learning, you know, what can you teach me? What do you know that I don't know? Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of knowledge. And so people go, you know, we we don't touch politics as a small talk topic.
0: The Germans or Americans?
1: Um, Americans, okay. you know, but Germans will. That yeah. is a small talk top topic.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pol- wait, politics are
1: <laughs> politics. <laughs> yeah, a small talk. You know, topic, yeah, you're? oh yeah. I've had people open with you know, what? so Barack Obama, you know, because I'm black, oh, you know, yeah, of and course. <laughs> Barack Obama, and I'm like, Barack <laughs> Obama, huh. yes. What do you think about, Bar-? you mm-hmm. know? But that's not necessarily an opener between two Americans. (laughs) And we're like, well, how about the weather? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, small talk topics and actually having to make a list of topics that are okay to talk about and that are taboo for us and and how that might differ. Yeah, we're building, we're trying to find things in common. And we hook on to the things that we have in common and we start at gentle. So there's no possibility for conflict. Yeah. And well, Germans don't shy away from conflict. And so if somebody, if you have are, are in conversation with somebody who disagrees with you, even better, you know, that's where you, know, you can have a most lively discussion and where they feel the most learning can take place yeah. because then it becomes a debate yeah. And you're expected to defend your position and, and teach that other person something. And, unless
0: it's about race.
1: Unless it's about race, yeah. Then, then they run away. Right. They're not ready to deal with that yet at all. And that's what makes it difficult teaching in the university system very often. Because you're doing this with a bunch of people who are coming at it from a variety of contexts and perceptions and you know and they're curious at the same time they would love to know but they really are navigating a minefield they really don't know how and in a country you know where they do not collect any statistics on race at yeah. all you know so um
0: and the other thing that i've noticed is like you know the events of the holocaust sort of gets conflated with the idea of race and right. so because germans think that they mm-hmm. have paid for their sins right for the Holocaust. That right. they, in addition to doing that, therefore have paid for the sins, for the mm-hmm. whatever ideas of race that they have, issues that they have with race.
1: Mm-hmm. That's and, and and
0: also forgetting the history of their colonies that they had because mm-hmm. they lost them all during World War One, World War Two. So it was like this clean break. France right. has a colonial problem. Portugal has a colonial problem. UK has a colonial problem. But Germany doesn't have a colonial
1: right. problem. Right, right.
0: We, did. it. We, we didn't have it. We right. lost it, so we don't have
1: it. Right, which is an absolute lie, you know, just absolute lie, you know. So dealing with that, you know, in the classroom, and then, of course, the classroom is not solely German. I might have a – here in Berlin, I'll have a class where there might be two, maybe three German students, and then everybody else will be from everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So everybody is trying to make sense of this. In Germany, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> so some of my students that are coming from other places that are of color are experiencing things, and they have no idea how to talk about that here, how to place that here, and then here I come with my American frameworks, yeah. And, you know, and I try to give them some beginning. You know, here's how you can begin to think about this yeah. and what's going on and what you're seeing.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah, there's very little in the way of. I would say I'm. I feel very ill-equipped to fully bring the German context yeah. into the classroom. There's not enough that I know yet. I just know from my experience of living here, but I don't know what it is if, to be to grow up here, to yeah. be born here, and to grow up here in yeah. this. So, yeah, mm. it's it's not easy, you know, to facilitate those discussions, you know. So it goes from language to culture, like that. Yeah, in a heartbeat.
0: What have you taken the most out of teaching these concepts?
1: I would say um, finding words to describe the phenomena that we see going on around us, and maybe because I'm a person who's not that good with words, ironically. You don't think so no, um, I think I'm maybe good about talking about feelings in very simple terms, but often I feel like I trip over myself when I begin to try to talk about the intricate dynamics of power and Mm. what it does to a person Mm. and understanding the emotional part of that. One of the things I learned teaching language, business English is You can't separate language, a language from the emotional, that when a person is feeling some kind of way emotionally about a group of people, it's going to be they're going to have a barrier to learning their language. Mm -hmm. And I think that's often why I was. Placed in the role of therapist because on some level they knew this intuitively that they would have to get past that yeah and to find the motivation so i would say finding words to describe these phenomena of the phenomena of whiteness as a culture the phenomena of white supremacy culture the phenomena of fragility the phenomena of privilege you know and how that manifests and how that affects us and helping them. To understand, you know, the dynamics between dominant and non-dominant yeah. cultures, you know, yeah. So finding finding my foot my footing and being able to talk about this, and at the same time, the challenge is to not respond emotionally to this because inevitably you are talking about your experience, yeah. And there's always the concern as an educator: Am I centering myself? Am I putting myself um, in my experience and my perception and my perspective too much? You know, there's a, that, that self-doubt and yeah. I'm learning to fight that. I'm learning to draw boundaries and to have, in the words of a mentor, my mentor, you know, Shariana Rice, who's been really helpful in getting me to the stage of finding benchmarks. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand that what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I can question and interrogate my motivations for speaking on a particular topic.
0: Would you say that fear of, are you speaking too much from your own experience because you want it to be, I guess, more objective? Because I feel like, I guess it's a funny thing, right, about race, is like that I think people have a hard time talking about it because it's hard to be truly objective
1: without it. I don't think there is any such thing as true objectivity. Yeah. I don't believe in it. I want to find a place. I want to find connection. Yeah. I want to activate my students' abilities to empathize. I want to motivate them to empath- empathize. Yeah. Um, so I want to, them to have clarity. I want that clarity to be solid, to base, based on accurate and complete information. And accurate and complete is always going to be changeable. It's always going to be dynamic. What we felt was accurate 50 years ago and complete 50 years ago, we know now wasn't. So we can only do our best. And so that's what I do. I say, I'll do my best to bring you accurate and complete information Mm -hmm. from from which you can base your perceptions. You can interrogate your perceptions and interpretations and evaluations of an interaction or a situation and um, from there, well, all we can do is be open for new information and to in, be willing to incorporate that new information to change. Yeah. So that's these are the skills I'm trying to share with them. And I think very often, they expect debates that are based on very dominant cultural, to find standards and definitions of rationality and objectivity, which they believe, you know, would be possible. And they have trouble hearing messages about race from a person inhabiting my body. Yeah. You know, they're hardwired programmed to see that any information I would bring to that regard would be subjective. You know, that's well-documented and that's an aspect of, of fragility too, mm, you Yeah. Know, so.
0: Right, taking that out as an excuse for them too. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the pushback and, you know, the, I handle the pushback, I think, a little better, but it's always a challenge. You know, it always leaves me, you know, reeling with self-doubt oh, yeah. and what could I have done better and. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Your role as an educator.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I'm not afraid to teach those tough lessons and sometimes tough lessons I can teach more by being tough on a student and saying okay right you're done than I can trying to debate them and go around in a circle with them. you know. Yeah. But I try to you know I try to put myself in their shoes too and and to continually remind myself that I have a hell of a lot of power as an educator in that classroom. Yeah. And there's that, that contradiction that's there. So here I am, a person who generally doesn't have a lot of power when, we, when I go out into society, mm-hmm. and then I come into the classroom and I do.
0: Yeah, for them, I'm sure it's not, they don't like that feeling.
1: Mm-mm. No. I think they're trying to reconcile that. Yeah. What does that mean, you know? There's a whole lot of questions I feel like they want to ask me, but they're still not ready to. They're maybe afraid to ask me and that might be that fear might be valid because yeah, I have power. I'm their evaluator and their educator. Yeah. It isn't like they go from my class to an independent evaluator. I sit there and evaluate them afterward. So yeah, there's that aspect. It's an- <clears throat> Living in Germany has taught me a lot. The you you you'll find the same things that you left. It's theme and variation basically. Mm-hmm. Germany is just a variation on an age old theme. Yeah, yeah, here you know many of the same things that I left in the United States. The same barriers that I left in the United States are here too. So. Now I'm navigating them in another language.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I can't. Kudos to you. I can't imagine. I was talking to Nina and she was like, yeah, you're doing the hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are so many people to learn from here too. And that's what I'm grateful for. Prior to say 2012, 2013, the diasporic movements were, i felt rather isolated there was one here and what here and what here it yeah. wasn't a whole lot of connection
0: it's probably oh well, i mean it's probably hard mm-hmm. right pre pre internet mm-hmm. for people to find each other
1: mm-hmm. yeah and it's been interesting watching it change because i felt so alone for so long and now i don't anymore mm-hmm. and i feel like there are networks and people i can go to and i it would listen to me if i um, had a problem with discrimination or yeah. some kind of intimidation. That that didn't exist in 1999, Yeah, you know, here in any way, shape, or form. And then we had our, we thought we were post-racial moment. When, yeah.
0: 1998?
1: No, 2006. Okay. Germany. 2006? The, the World Cup.
0: Oh. The World
1: Cup was held in Did, Germany. In
0: Germany one? No. The, the no,
1: the Italy one, I think. Italy believe. one, okay. Yeah, that World Cup. But it was the first time that, you know, Germany in a long time, very long time, I can't remember the last time before that, but it was a long time since, you know, that Germany had. Um, Hosted the World Cup, the world stage, people coming, people visiting Germany to see how they're doing now after the wall has fallen, (laughs) after they've, you know, repaired the streets and you know made everything. So Germany went through this big, massive cleanup phase, and you know, there were customer service courses and (laughs) language courses. Everybody was taking English and everybody wanted to show they were friendly and the German flag was being, you know, flown for the first time since oh, they the war. Oh, they
0: they before two thousand six, they were not have the flag raised. No, huh.
1: I mean, they, of course, it was raised over Parliament, but
0: to, no, not to, people to like have actually, people yeah. in the
1: streets and proud yeah. and Germany in the World Cup, and here we are, and we're hosting. Huh. There was not that, and so people began to feel good about themselves and good mm-hmm. about, you know, and then here comes. The possible election of a black president in the United yeah. States. And people were feeling like, oh, you know, all of this. And that was Germany's post racial moment. We were coming together. <laughs> we have an internet, we have a team, a German team, and there's people of color on the German team. Were there? And, yeah, Turkish people. Osil okay. you know, was on the team at that time. And um, yeah, it was basically Germany felt itself for the first time to be. Beyond multicultural, mm-hmm. to yeah. be cross-cultural, mm-hmm. on its way to intercultural. And yeah, are,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, that was the bedtime to- story they told themselves for a while. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then we had things happen. And those narratives are still going around, you know, the refugees and, oh, how those millions of refugees came into our country yeah. and... In Cologne, oh, how those all those people ran through the streets and they were assaulting our women. And I said, well, you know, we need to talk about the fact that there are more assaults on German women by German men than there are on a daily basis than there are by. Um, and we don't need to, you know, even bring up the amount of refugee centers that have been burned uh, by Germans. Mm. But we're not going to talk about that. Going to talk about how we're invaded, and and that's where things begin. I think to really take um, a blatant, explicit, yeah, the AFD overt nationalism. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very disappointing. My friendship groups in the two thousands when I was teaching for Daimler and had my own business. I had also other business clients
0: yeah.
1: are not the same. My business has changed. My friendship circles have changed radically since that time. Since 2006. Mm-hmm. In what since, way? Since 2013, I would say, 2012, 2013. I would say that a lot of my white friends are probably, well, I'm very vocal on Facebook. I post not my own words. I share articles, maybe with a comment or two, but mm-hmm. that is enough to trigger some. And I think that, you know, they're very bewildered and confused by the fact that I'm willing to speak about whiteness and white supremacy culture openly, mm-hmm. that I'm willing to speak, you know, about all kinds of oppression openly and, and hold myself and my German colleagues to task, mm-hmm. you know, take them to task for that. Yeah. And that's, you know... It's new for them. It's a new evolution. And so I feel as though many of my friends have kind of watched this and backed off because they're worried that if they come into contact with me, they will more than likely end up in a very uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So um, rather than take the chance, they don't contact me that much anymore. I don't get I don't hear as much from my friends that I that I knew 10 years ago, which is okay because I think as you grow, right, you grow out of some friends. Yeah,
0: friendships are a function of both time, place, convenience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been interesting to watch that change and to watch Berlin change and to watch um, – to feel – good for the first time you feel like I belong in this city yeah um, yeah. a lot of the groups that have formed like each one to each one and Center for Intersectional Justice um, I am so glad you know spaces like Bakesh and the word that I see and there's so many others I'm very grateful you know for those spaces because they didn't exist we had a you know just very few people doing the work yeah they didn't exist before that and now there are places i can go and i can hear lectures on the topics that i'm interested yeah. in and things that affect me
0: yeah and that also makes it more frustrating because like when mm-hmm. you hear a germans say we don't talk about race like that here it's like you have access to it it's yeah. not that hard to find
1: no but they they're definitely afraid of that conversation yeah. i guess because they the conversation, post-war conversation, it was a moment they yeah. had to deal with, you know, their children rising up against them and disowning them, and yeah. you know all of this stuff. And now here, are the ch- these children's children are now taking them to task. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I think that's it. And they know what can come of this, you know, what can come of this, and that they their de- their own self perception of what it meant to be German. Will have to expand by their beyond their whiteness.
0: Yeah.
1: And um that scares them a little bit.
0: Not just the Americans too. Who...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Any dominant culture doesn't want to give up. You know, the privileges that come with having that identity. Yeah. You know, that defining identity and the power to say that everyone should conform. If you want to work with me, you have to conform yeah. and you have to assimilate to me.
0: You are the norm. Right. So. And you think you're going to stay in Berlin? You, 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 you is, is the States lost to mm-hmm. you?
1: The States have lost me. Okay. Yeah, they've lost okay. me, I think. <laughs> you know, uh, as long as I have family there, I always go back to visit. But I can't see myself ever living there permanently ever again. Mm-hmm. And it's really strange. You know, I have a colleague that I knew for years and years. And uh, they died of cancer here. They were from Britain. And I saw what it was like for somebody to emigrate here and live their life for a couple of decades and then pass away. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking. They're away from everybody. There's no family. They're buried in the cemetery near Yorkstrasse S-Bahn station. Mm-hmm. I went looking for their, their burial plot, and I couldn't find it. You know, And it just felt like they came here and disappeared. And I wonder sometimes if that will be my fate. If I will come here and I will disappear and I will end up in some ivy covered burial plot somewhere in a corner of Berlin. So yeah, I don't know. But I don't want to go back to the United States to live. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't keep me from being worried about what's going back going on back there because I have my mother and my brother are there, my cousins are there, and I worry about their what's going on for them. But and I also worry how long at some point, I think Trump will turn his gaze toward those of us who have lived abroad for a number of years.
0: Won't? Will. Oh, will. He will.
1: Uh, we're overwhelmingly Democrat. And I mm-hmm. think if there, if he could find a way to revoke our citizenship, mm-hmm. he would. I mean, this is the same person who's talking about uh, exploring options for a third term. Did he say that? <laughs> yeah. He said he at some point he would. <clears throat> Whether he was joking or not, I don't know, but I do remember remember hearing him joke about that or say something like that. So I don't put anything past him, and I think you know, I I could definitely see maybe ten years, twenty years down the line, a measure being passed saying if you've lived outside the United States for a certain number of years, then you know you're, you'll be forced to choose whether you want you know U.S. citizenship or the citizenship. You cannot have a permanent residency somewhere and maintain US citizenship mm. if you've lived outside of the United States, say more than fifteen years. Yeah. I could see something like that happening if we don't yeah. uh, if we're not careful. And so I wonder whether it it might not be possible for me to return yeah. to the United States. Hmm. The questions that go through your head. Yeah.
0: I think <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just think we need to a- I know I know people want change now but I feel like what we're seeing now is like the last I Said this before it was like the last gasp of breath by people who are currently in power to hold on to power mm-hmm. there will be a new there will be a new norm normative group of people who are in power which I'm sure will repeat similar things but what I feel like what we're seeing now is people very quickly realizing that things are changing mm-hmm. and all this nationalism and outright racism is the result of that mm-hmm. because if they feel like if they don't do it now, they will not be able ever
1: to mm-hmm. do it, which, I'm is, glad which to, is a weird yeah. logic. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, no, I'm glad you agree. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And hopefully, you know, I, hope. I think it will. <laughs> I don't think it will, but we need to go through these growing pains. We need to go through this. We need to really finish what was abruptly ended in the late '60s, because I think we rushed to comfort ourselves. We rushed to um, restore the status quo very quickly after Martin Luther King was shot. You know, there was all this turmoil and conversation, and then King was shot, and all of a sudden we're all together now. Can you know, and it's just like, no, we're not. And we and Reagan, still have... And Reagan. Right.
0: And then I guess, yeah. And then like you said, like 2008, a mm-hmm. good portion of America thought we're now post-racial. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's just, there are so many things that we need to finish talking about. And we, we start conversations and we don't finish them. We rush to comfort ourselves. We don't know how... I'm talking about Americans, really, as a culture. We don't really know how to sit with discomfort. With um, more so than others,
0: like-
1: my experience of Germans is that um, yes, there are fragile Germans. There are fragile people everywhere, but they have, you know, maybe Germans that are my age and older. They have a, an ability to sit with discomfort and to be challenged. Mm-hmm. More so. I always thought, I always held out hope that white Germans were better placed to actually role model how to deal with a difficult past for other countries in the world because they, you know, don't shy away from conflict as much Mm -hmm. as more relationship oriented cultures do. And they've had to do that self critical self-reflection and to erect the memorials and the Stolpersteine and all the things that they're doing. But I'm not, I'm not sure anymore. I, 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 you know, looking at what's happening in Germany today, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's a little of both there. There's the extreme resentment and fragility there. And then there's the extreme resilience and the ability to have difficult conversations and when i think americans because we've never had to really reckon with our past and be accountable for our past we don't have we haven't developed that skill yet so we when difficult conversations arise we cut each other off
0: Mm.
1: we you know change the subject talk about the weather and that's to our detriment i think Mm. Sometimes it's okay to sit with bad, you know, to, to, to say, I feel bad, you know, about this. And I don't know how, or I just don't know. And I'm, I'm a bit lost right now Yeah. to get a better vocabulary for talking about how we're feeling and a way for processing the shame and the guilt yeah. that is not going to be hurtful to the people who are affected. Like right. Yeah. Right. know. Who are you know, my, I It's my job to process the shame and guilt of white people in my classroom, right? Yeah, for what is worth. <laughs> Full disclosure, that's what they're paying. And that's why it's the hard work. Right, that's what said that. mm-hmm. But um, you know, to move them past that, so that they don't go and hurt other people. Yeah, you know, with that. But um, it's exhausting, and um, we need to do better at listening.
0: Yeah, we do. <laughs> do. you Have anything else you want to add, Evan? No. no <laughs>
1: sure. Are you anything else you'd like to ask me? Or no, we yeah. talked
0: about a lot. I, um, mm. Yeah. Do you have a website that's for for your for the type of work that you're doing that people can look more?
1: No, I would say um, Allies Academy. Okay. On Facebook, follow us on Facebook, and we have a facebook group um that's primarily driven by shariana rice i'm not so active in the group and online at, at with alice academy because i'm doing a lot of the work in the classroom yeah but we are working together on that and that is you know something that's really come up we have over twenty thousand followers now congratulations on the page. thank you and the group is coming along well and i would say yeah check that out i I'm working on my new iteration. <laughs>
0: iteration?
1: Yeah, well, meaning that I, I want to see what I want to do next besides teaching in the universities. Mm-hmm. I want to teach people who want to learn, who are who do have want, are courageous enough to ask those questions. Yeah. And so I would like to make myself available to people who are ready for that.
0: Right, because the class you're teaching right now is sort of a requirement. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're all just like, why are
1: we here? Right. So once I do that, then I'll have a website and I'll have, you know, ways to, you know, introduce myself, reintroduce myself. So I'm still puzzling it out. (laughs) That's all.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you,
1: Yvonne. Thank you. Lovely talking with you, Sivan.
0: Yeah. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.